You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cyberwire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Jana Mendez. She's a retired CIA intelligence officer, and she is the former chief of disguise for the CIA. Interesting conversation for sure. All right, Joe, uh, we don't have any follow-up uh, this week, so why don't we just jump right into our stories? You want to kick things off for us? Dave, it's time for Joe's Classic Cons Part 3. <laughs> okay. These are these are cons that are... Uh, from the old days, or maybe now, you might see them. They're they're not uh, what you would consider internet scams. They're more like in person scams, right? These are things mm. that you should, but they're still social engineering, uh, yeah. which is very important. And the first one I have is the lottery scam, mm. uh, and this con requires some pretty good storytelling on the part of the of the scammer, and maybe an inside man would be helpful. But here's what the scammer does: they approach mm. somebody and they say, "I've won the lottery." Right. I've got this this lottery ticket and it's maybe I've won a thousand dollars for the lottery. Right. Maybe it's a pick mm-hmm. three. Maybe it's a it's a fake Powerball ticket. It's a scam. So the, the ticket's fake. Um, and maybe I've picked out uh, six of the seven numbers. So I get a thousand dollars. But I can't claim the cash because I owe money to the government and they'll confiscate it. Or I'm an illegal immigrant. And when when I go to claim the prize, I'm afraid I'll be deported. Right. Mm. So they'll do this. Mm-hmm. So what they'll do then is they'll say, and this is a very useful tool in conning. They'll say, uh, does anybody have any options? What can, what can, how can we overcome this, right? So they'll like start brainstorming. At some point in time, they're going to have the victim of this scam verify the numbers. And in the old days, cons would provide forged newspapers as proof of the winning numbers, right? So they'd, they'd print hmm. up a fake newspaper and they'd have the numbers in the newspaper uh, these days, they use a fake hotline or a website, right? Because anybody can set up a website. And if you set up a website that looks like a lottery website or you set up a phone number is easy enough to set up with a Google voice number, you can put a recording on that. Uh, right. And and since the ticket is completely fake, the number and the website can be printed on the back of the ticket, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, once the story is spun, the con offers to sell the ticket at a discount, right? Hmm. And that's when that's when the the victim of the uh, of of the scam says, yeah, you know, it's it's going to pay out a thousand dollars. I'll give you seven hundred fifty bucks for it, thinking that they're going to collect and make a profit of two hundred fifty bucks. But mm-hmm. of course, of course, the ticket is fake. If necessary, there's an inside guy who says, you know, really, you should buy the ticket. It's, it always it, it, a lot of these. Both my scams today have the possibility of having a second a second person who looks like a bystander or maybe is inside with the victim. Um, mm. And of course, when you go to, to claim the winnings, the, the the ticket is fake. Now, here's what's interesting, Dave. My last job in what I describe as my uh, brief and failed sales career, I, <laughs> I was selling printers. And uh, one of the printers, lines of printers that we sold, uh, I think we had a couple from a company called Zebra, and they're actually still around. And they make mm. these printers called direct thermal printers. And they're not that expensive. And all you need is a direct thermal printer and a uh, a roll of direct thermal paper that looks like a lottery ticket paper. 
uh, and maybe even get some some information printed on the back of that paper. Uh, and I'm sure you can order that probably online, have it printed up, or maybe you can actually steal some uh, some lottery paper from somebody uh, because all these lottery vendors have rolls of those lottery ticket, uh, those sheets, and those lottery tickets are printed out on direct thermal paper. So if I get another direct thermal printer and just run that paper through that printer, there's nothing to stop me from printing up lottery tickets. This is a scam I have the technical expertise to conduct, Dave. Uh, but <laughs> fortunately for the world, I'm not that good of a con man. I'd be like, hey, uh, I have this fake lottery, I mean, lottery ticket, and it, it wouldn't right, go over right. well for me. I'm not that slick. <laughs> And, and so, so uh, as evidenced by your failed sales career. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> yeah, okay. okay. Now, the next one is, uh, is called the flop, uh, or as I like to call it, the men's soccer player. <laughs> okay. Now, right, it, of course. in older versions of this game, the con usually had an old injury, and it was actually pretty dangerous. And what would happen is the con would step in front of a car and then flop onto the hood of the car. Uh, and then they would either demand compensation immediately or go to the hospital and an examination would reveal the old injury and the insurance company would pay out. Uh, huh. But today, there's a safer version of this con, right? So instead of, instead of getting hit, or maybe they, maybe they get hit, but what they say is they are fine, the victim is fine, uh, and they don't need any medical attention, but their computer, iPad or maybe a, a cell phone, has been broken. Uh, you're glad that they're not injured. You as the victim are glad they're not injured and you just pay, uh, give them some money to compensate them for their damaged equipment. Now, the equipment was damaged before the incident, right? You can get this kind of equipment online cheap, right? If you, so many, A lot of people are selling broken cell phones. You can just go pay 10 bucks for a broken cell phone and then lay on top of someone's hood and go, oh, you broke my cell phone. That was a $300 cell phone. Somebody gives <laughs> you 300 bucks and you make... 290 bucks, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's And you're pretty... thinking to yourself that you're, you dodged a bullet here because they're not coming after you for medical expenses or, or some other long, drawn-out lawsuit. Right. And now there is a lot of times there's a, a second person involved in this scam as well, and they don't look like they're associated with the, with the scammer, right? Hmm. They look like they're just standing there and they're a witness. So if you're, if you're sitting there hemming and hawing about paying for the, the damaged equipment— this bystander will come over and go, listen, man, you've got an opportunity here just to give this guy some cash and then walk away from the situation, right? Mm -hmm, so he'll, mm -hmm. he'll kind of compel you. Uh, there are two things you can do to prevent yourself uh, from getting scammed this way. Number one is uh, do the Dave Bittner and get yourself a dash cam. <laughs> right? Yes, 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 um, that is correct. I do have a dash cam. And it's, uh, you love dash cam videos, right? I do, yeah. I, I'll admit it's a guilty pleasure of mine. I, I do enjoy watching dash cam videos. I found one on YouTube from the Today Show where it was a woman in the UK uh, and this guy, uh, this guy was on a motor scooter, a little scooter bike, right? A motorized scooter. Mm -hmm. uh, and he is in the street and she stops and he backs the scooter up into her car and then jumps on her hood, right? Oh, yeah. And she gets yeah. out. She gets out. And then the, then the bystander comes over and goes, hey, you crashed into that guy and starts putting the pressure on her. And she turns around and points to her car and says, I have a dash cam. And both the guys take off. They run. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, just not to get too deep into the weeds here, but there's a whole genre of dash cam videos that are called brake check videos. And a lot of them have to do with the, there's a version of this scam where someone's out, you know, they, they get themselves a, you know, a $50 car. They go out, go out on the highway, they get in front of an 18-wheeler that can't stop very quickly, 
You yeah. know, they they hit the brakes, the eighteen wheeler taps them from behind, and lawsuit. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of times uh, they'll load that car up with uh, with people as well, and those people mm-hmm. are are being used by you know used exploited, if you will, and they're putting being put in real serious danger. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and they, and these guys have no compunction about doing that. They just say, yeah, everybody load up in that car and slam on your brakes in front of an 18 wheeler. Yeah. What could go wrong? Yeah, yeah. Could, <laughs> <laughs> these people are horrible people. Um, the other thing, on me. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing you can do to prevent this is uh, as soon as this happens and you think you're being scammed, insist upon uh, calling an ambulance or, or police and filing a report. Uh, say no. This is not going down without without this being officially documented. Uh, yeah, it's okay. I'll I'll risk th- having this mark on my insurance, particularly if you see something where it's obvious to you that these guys are are trying to scam you. Uh, usually, mm-hmm. when you insist upon calling the police, they'll leave because the police yeah. probably know who they are. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, it's uh, it's one to look out for, and uh, as always, uh, spread the word to your friends and family about this one. Uh, it seems like. These sorts of things are proliferating, um, I suppose, with fewer people being out and about at the moment. Maybe people are taking a break from it, but right. but who knows? Because you also have, you know, desperate times, uh, people uh, often stoop to these sorts of things uh, when, when desperate times come upon them. Yeah. Um, my story this week, uh, it actually comes from Twitter. It comes from a gentleman named Aaron Guys. I believe I have his last name right. It uh, could be a tricky one, but uh, he tweeted... Um, actually did a video capture of a, a series of, of scammy incidents that popped up on his iPhone. Uh, and Joe, I, I know you're an Android guy. I suspect that there's probably a, a similar version of this that pops up on, on the Android site. And this is, or, or on an Android device. This is actually scammy in two parts. So let's walk through this together. The first thing that happens is you're, you're browsing along, you're, you're you know, surfing the web, minding your own business, you go to a site and up pops a pop-up that takes over the entire screen. Mm-hmm. Right? From the web browser. And this, on your web browser. You're in your web browser. This pops up and takes over the entire screen. It says, your iPhone may be hacked due to recent surfing on suspicious sites. So this is your fault. Right, right exactly. Your, your personal data on this iPhone may be stolen via hidden scripts by cyber criminals. In case it happens, they can access all other Apple devices linked to this Apple ID and are vulnerable. Your devices may be blocked today if no action is taken. Install the most trusted cybersecurity application and activate for free to protect your Apple ID credentials and your iCloud data from loss. And next to this message, it has a picture of the uh, icon that Apple uses for system updates. So that makes it look more official. Right. And there's a countdown clock at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, for I noticed that. No reason like- whatsoever. It's like counting down from you know, a minute I don't know what's going to happen if you don't go in, you know, in time. Your your mobile device is going to burst into flames. Or right. Well, this is this is part of the pressure, Dave. They, you better do it now. Right. Right. Yep. Exactly. So that's part one. And this, first of all, this type of thing makes my blood boil. When I, yeah. When I'm just, this is this is one of the worst things about modern life it, it, online are these horrible ads, and and they they sneak their way into these ad server companies. You know that to to I mean every, nobody wants these, right? The people right. who are serving the ads, the people who are hosting the websites, everybody the, agrees these are bad. But these right. bad actors manage to sneak their way through and end up on some of these ad serving platforms. My question is, why can't the browser manufacturers make it so that my browser can't involuntarily go full screen? Hmm. 
I don't know. It's a good question. Maybe they I maybe they know. have done that. I don't know. This does have uh this does still have the URL up top. Yep. Okay, so you click the link because you don't want your phone to burst into flames. Right. And it takes you to an app called Ad Security Center. And this is an app you can download, and it it's listed as free, right? With uh, with uh, paid options. There are there are things you can pay for, but the app itself is free. And it says the most trusted ad blocker in the world, right? And then now, underneath there's two speech clouds. No ads. Cool. Right now, uh, it is is rated four point one out of five on the App Store. But if you go and look at the uh, look at the reviews, the reviews are pretty evenly split between five star reviews and one star reviews. Right? <laughs> right. And many of the five star reviews are suspiciously uh, written in Russian. Oh, are they also that? suspiciously similar? They are. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And the bad reviews are also very similar. Basically, they say things like, "This app is a scam." <laughs> this, right. This app just takes your money. So this app is uh, that type of app that is referred to as fleeceware. Fleeceware. Yep. And because it fleeces you out of your money, and the way it works is, you get a free three-day trial of this app, and then after three days, it automatically starts billing you. Uh, I believe it's ten dollars a week. Through your Apple account, through your Apple account, right? Right. You start getting yeah. you start getting billed ten bucks a week yep. for this app. Yep. Which is excessive. <laughs> it's five hundred dollars a year. That's um, ridiculous. And, it is ridiculous. And the three day uh, the three day trial period is also ridiculous because that doesn't give you enough time to cancel. Yeah. Right. There may be something yeah. in the T and C's uh, that say uh, terms and conditions that say you have to let us know within you know, 48 hours that you have, you want to cancel. Well, that means you have 24 hours to evaluate the product and decide you don't want it. Right. And yeah. And there's no way to opt out of paying this, right. There's, uh, there's no way to say, uh, yeah, I want to go ahead and, and do this. You, you have to enter your, your payment information is actually already entered because it's in the Apple, uh, the Apple app store or the Google play store. If they have something similar there and, right. You're just hosed. Then you have to call Apple. And you know, one of the one of my big concerns about Fleeceware is that there is no financial incentive for Apple or Google to remove these from their app store because they take a pretty big cut of those in-app purchases like this. Right. Right. And right. That needs to be addressed. Well, I mean, I, I'll say, I mean, to their credit, I, I think of the of the app stores out there, Apple does a good faith job of trying to clear out these sorts of things. Uh, I think you're right that they are they have uh, they're they're incentivized not to. <laughs> right. Um, and there have been occasions where, for example, I, I there was a time when um, I had inadvertently subscribed or or uh, renewed a subscription to a magazine that I was no longer interested in, and I dropped a note to Apple on the App Store, and I got a note back within a few hours that said, "Yep, no problem. Here, we you know refund. Uh, no worries. If you have any more trouble, please let us know." So. Uh, at least in that case, Apple was responsive. But, you know, even if you – I would imagine there are a lot of people who they get billed their first round, their first 10 bucks, Right. Right. And they they spot it. You know, they get a bill from Apple or whatever, and they go, whoa, wait, wait a minute. They disconnect. They remove the app. But they don't go through the hassle of asking for a refund. They just figure, oh, gosh, I got scammed. Well, right. 10 bucks, you know, not not the end of the world. 
And so these scammy uh, fleeceware folks profit. Right. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure that happens at least 50% of the time. That's me just taking a wild guess. But, you know, I, I'm sure that happens frequently, just as you're, uh, you're speculating. So the, I think the lesson here is uh, if, you, if you find yourself with one of these apps, you know, it's that whole too good to be true kind of thing. Make sure that you look at the terms and conditions to see what they're going to be billing you. And if they're going to start auto billing you anything, especially if it's on a weekly basis, right? Delete that app right away. Just yeah. get rid of it. There's a weekly a- basis is a couple. A couple things here. There's the old Krebs on security line. If you didn't ask for it, don't install it. Right. This is just something mm. that came up on your web browser. Don't do it. Don't install it. And then mm-hmm. uh, I like to say this is this is the the Joe Kerrigan line. Look at the reviews, and then look at the one star reviews. That's how I judge a product whether it's on uh, Amazon or any any place. I look at the one-star reviews and I see what they say, right? And I, I compare them to like the four-star and the three-star reviews. And if I see like three-star reviews that say this product's okay, or if I see four-star reviews that say there's here's some things wrong with the product, then I see one-star reviews that say mine was broken, right? Mm-hmm. Then I say, okay, go ahead and buy the product. But if I see one-star reviews that say this is a scam, right? And here's why <laughs> right. it's a scam. Or right. this this is a complete load of garbage. Don't buy this product at all. Then I, I don't buy the product and I look for something else. That's mm-hmm. how I make my, my purchasing decision. I absolutely do not take five-star reviews into account because you can't trust them because nobody pays for anything less than a five-star review, yeah. right? So they, they yeah. go out and they buy the five-star reviews. They don't buy four-star reviews. They buy five-star reviews. So right. read the other reviews. Actually, it's less reading. Yeah, yeah. That is my story for this week. Uh, we'll have a link to that uh, Twitter feed if you want to check out the video that really lays out uh, exactly what happened here. And uh, thanks to Aaron Guys for uh, posting that on Twitter. I think that's a good, useful sharing of information for everybody to check out. It is time to move on to our catch of the day. Our catch of the day this week comes from Tom Chivers on Twitter. He is at Tom Chivers. Uh, and uh, this is a, a letter, uh, and it, it's pretty ominous here, Joe. Do uh, you want me to read it, or do you yeah. want to take a shot at it? Dave, why don't you read it, and I'll do some commenting on the in, <laughs> on the in-between, because this does have some broken English, and nobody gets through broken English like you do, Dave. <laughs> All right. Well, this one's pretty dark, so uh, let me see. How, how What's a good voice for this one? Let's try this. I am pleased to inform you that we have been paid to assassinate you by someone close to you sincerely. Pleased to inform want... me that you've been paid to assassinate. Pleased. That's good. I want you to listen very carefully about your safety. And do not, I repeat, do not try in any way doing anything funny. In other words, trying to inform any security agent because this is our business. We know how to do it best. I like that he, he repeats in text. We have our network all over the world. In order not to endanger your life, the more you are advised to cooperate with us, to know if we can change our initial plan to assassinate you. Oh, there's an opportunity here for me. Once you are in receipt of this message, I will like you to get back to us immediately, as delay is dangerous. There's the uh, immediate call to action. I wait to hear from you on this matter within the next 24 hours, and that is if you appreciate and love your existence. Appreciate and love your existence with the artificial time constraint. Please do not in any way communicate this or discuss this with anybody, because you wouldn't know whom you are talking with. Reply to this message now. Our watchdog are on you. Do not make any mistake. 
God be with you. Good luck. <laughs> and finally, the attempt to isolate you and the appeal to religion as well. This has a <laughs> lot of the features in here. I love this message. Yeah. It, I mean, it is dark. You're right. It's dark. But mm -hmm. it's textbook. And yeah, of course, yeah, it's fake. A... They're just trying to get you to send them <laughs> To not kill you, which they're not yeah. going to do anyway. Yeah, boy, the threat of assassination. That is just uh, putting it all out there, isn't it? Yeah, it's I... it's bold. You know, it's and and this is something that absolutely gets your attention. It's kind of like how we talk about that, how there's this filtration thing here, because you're either going to get two reactions to this. Either someone's going to do a spit take and, and laugh out loud at this right. right? because it's so <laughs> absurd or they're going to be absolutely terrified by it. There's, I, I suspect there's very little middle, middle ground. ground here. And so that filtration thing happens, and, and if they get you, boy, they've got a hot one on the line. That's right. And then they're going to extract money from you, and they're going to keep extracting money from you. Yeah. Until there's no more money to extract. Yep, that's right. That's right. All right. Well, that is our catch of the day. Uh, we want to thank uh, Tom Chivers for sharing that on Twitter. Uh, and, of course, uh, if you have a catch of the day, we would love to hear about it. You can send it to us at... Hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Or you can hit us up on Twitter. I am at JT Kerrigan, and Dave is at Bittner with two Ts. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Jana Mendez. She is a retired CIA intelligence officer. She is also the former chief of disguise for the CIA, and boy, has she led an interesting life, uh, as you might imagine. Uh, just a, a delight to talk to her. Here's my conversation with Jana Mendez. Uh, the career... Uh journey was was not a straight line at all. That's probably true for so many people. I came out of Wichita, Kansas. I was in college. I went to um, Europe to be in my best friend's wedding. And basically, I never went home. That's when I flew the nest. Um, I decided I wanted to stay in Europe. And I knew I had to find a job. So I, I ended up just blind calling a bunch of banks, American banks in Frankfurt, Germany, seeing if anybody needed this young American woman who didn't speak German. And oddly, Chase Manhattan Bank did. They said, come on in, talk to us. Do you have a work permit? No. Speak German? No. You ever worked in a bank? No. And they hired me. <laughs> um, and through the bank, I met a group of young Americans there was an enormous American presence back then in um, in Germany, military. And these uh, young people said they were with that military group, but they were not. They were uh, CIA, kind of the very young professional group. And I um, became friendly with them and knew them for years. And I ended up marrying one of them. That was my first husband, John Gazer. And what era are we talking about? What years is this? This was in the um, late 60s, early okay. 70s. Mm -hmm. And the thing I had going on was a, a, an abiding interest in photography. Is this the sort of thing that, that uh, we often see in movies with folks with you know, small cameras uh, that, that, that they've hidden somewhere, pulling them out and taking photos of documents while they've you know, snuck into a room, that, that sort of thing? Um. It was, I think it was better than that. Our cameras <laughs> were so small, we could put them in key fobs or big lighters. My tiny cameras, uh, the, best, the best of them went into um, expensive fountain pens. So if you imagine, you could be sitting at your desk with your fountain pen. These things were silent. 
they, they, it was one motion. You didn't need two hands. You just needed to tap the top of your pen. You'd take a picture. If your boss walked out, it still worked as a pen. You could make a note. You could put it in your pocket, drop it in your purse, go to lunch with him. It was a, it was an amazing tool. That camera it was called a tropel. And arguably more significant intelligence was collected with that pen than almost any other device that we had, including our satellite systems. Because hmm. what we were looking for was the plans and intentions of our enemy. And while the satellites brought back volumes and volumes of information, they were always talking about today. This is what's there today. This is what it looks like today. We wanted to know tomorrow, plans and intentions. And so you're getting the documents coming out of the, the, getting the minutes of the meeting or the agenda for the meeting. That's what we were after. Could imagine today, if we were working today, we'd be looking to try and find out what Kim Jong-un, the plans he has for that nuclear arsenal, hmm. or what Mr. Putin has in mind for our next election. I mean, those are, those are the questions of the day. Now, how did that uh, beginning with photography lead to disguises? Well, it didn't. I was having a fairly wonderful career. It was a traveling job. I mean, I, I was everywhere. These operations were all over the globe. But I, I spent two months, um, one summer, in the Middle East. Actually, I was in the subcontinent. And I just fell in love with the culture, everything, the people, the food, just all of it. And I came back to Washington and said, I'd like an assignment in that part of the world. And they said, there, there's nothing coming open for photography. There's a job for disguise coming open in a couple of years. And I changed my career track I said, make me, then let's make me a disguise officer. I really want to do this. And that's, that's the path that took me into disguise. It's a little far-fetched, but I was all excited. I had just discovered that I could actually control my career instead of sitting back and waiting to see what they had in mind, that I could uh, step forward and make some suggestions. And it worked. Can you give us some insights? What goes into that side of things? What what makes for a good disguise? How how does that work when you're trying to disguise yourself and, and appear like someone else or blend into the background? Well, it's just totally dependent. It's situational. It's all over the place. What you think you need, maybe what you actually do need. Uh, can we make it? Can you wear it? Will, will the climate allow it? So you'd sit down with each each person that would approach the disguise branch, and you, you'd go through a, a, a vetting process, a, a requirement definition, find out what it was that they needed to accomplish. When we were putting these things together, we were referring back to some colleagues, some professional colleagues out in uh, L.A., in the makeup departments, and the special effects departments. One of them was named John Chambers. He was responsible for the early beginnings of a lot of our techniques. He, um, he and Tony sat down and Chambers said, you know, you, you call it uh, an operation. We call it a performance. 
they're more or less talking about deception and illusion and a little bit of magic. He said, you know, the first part of planning it, you have to know what's the stage. Where are you going to conduct this thing? Where is this deception going to take place? Because a lot depends on that. And the, the other part of it is, who's your audience? Who are you actually trying to fool? Is it someone in a car behind you? Is it the, the gate guard where, where you have to go in and out of the embassy proper? Or is it a video camera in the parking garage? So figure out who your audience is, what your stage is. And then, then you start understanding what you can get away with. So we always had in our mind that these officers were going to go out and meet someone. And the person they met was going to write a memo for the record that said, I met with this person Tuesday afternoon, and this is what he looked like. This is what he said his name was, and this is what he looked like. He was married or he wasn't married. He smoked. He didn't smoke. He wore too much cologne. He didn't wear, you know, and everything in that memo for the record should be wrong. That was our goal. The color of his eyes, there wasn't much we couldn't change. Although I always had to point out to them that it was an additive process, always. So we couldn't make people shorter. We could always make them taller. Couldn't make them thinner, but we could make them look heavier. We could make them look older. It's very hard to make them look younger. And, you know, a lot of the women might not be happy when we finish with them because they usually did not look better. Mm. I'm, I'm curious, with your expertise in disguises, did that make it so that you had uh, better skills at spotting someone who was in disguise? I don't know that I would spot someone who was in disguise, but I, I wasn't walking around looking for people in disguise. Mm. But, if, but if I was looking for a specific kind of person, I might be able to find them in a crowd that they didn't belong in. I used to laugh and say, you know, don't walk by me wearing a toupee because (laughs) my head will swivel. They're always kind of awful and I could see them a mile away. It wasn't that I could see people in disguise. It was the other the other half of the coin. When I lived in the Far East, our visitors would arrive in the middle of the night because the big flights from from America they would come into these desert-like conditions in the cool of the night. It was a better timing for the plane. And I would have to go out to an airport and watch a 747 unload. And I'd be looking for a CIA officer who was coming to visit us, who had never been there before. I'd never seen his picture. I knew his name. I didn't know anything about him. But I had to find him in that crowd. And I always found him. Because there was a profile that I could see of a CIA officer, how they dress, the kind of things they carry, the kinds of bags they use, just just the whole package. I could see it. I never missed my man. (laughs) Now, you have a a story that you share about uh, being in disguise in the Oval Office. I do. We had, um, coming out of... uh, Los Angeles, coming out of the creative studios in the in the movie industry out there. Uh, John Chambers caught our eye partly because he had done the Planet of the Apes masks, and we were really interested in them. We didn't want to make apes, but the way, if you ever saw the movies, the way that he fit the eyes to those to those um, characters, 
there was an animation in there. I mean, they were very human. You, they expressed a lot of emotion. And we thought, you know, that's a beginning of something that might be useful to us. And this is my husband, Tony Mendez. So he started a program. Let's make believable animated masks that fit so closely that track our muscular movements that we could actually have a conversation with someone and they wouldn't know that we had on a mask. Hmm. It had to go on quickly. I mean, less than 10 seconds. It had to come off just as fast. Couldn't leave any residue in Hollywood. It takes hours to get out of some of that stuff. We had, we had seconds. And about 10 years after we went into that program, we started producing what we called uh, semi-animated masks, SAMs, full face masks that would only fit you. You know what? They were made just for you. And it was, the, it was a huge breakthrough. Uh, it allowed us to change everything. We could change your ethnicity. We could change your gender. We could put another face on you that would animate. So it was, it was really quite a big deal. Well, I showed it to um, my boss, and he said, let's show it to the head of CIA, Judge Webster. And he said, let's take it to the White House. And I said, I don't think I can wear this to the White House. This turns me into an African-American male. And while it looks really good, it's a proof of concept. If we're going to go to the White House, we need something that I can actually talk in. So he said, make another one. So we did. We made a second one. The second one, I was younger. I was prettier. I love this mask. <laughs> I, I, I think about it sometimes. Anyway, it was every bit as good as the first one. It was actually a little bit better. I told the judge, I said, I have, I have no idea. I don't have anything that goes with this. He said, don't, you're with me. Don't worry about it. So we went to the White House and we met with uh, President George H.W. Bush and a room full of luminaries, Bob Gates, John Sununu, Brent Scowcroft. The vice president wasn't there. He was late. He came tiptoeing in uh, and missed, missed the whole thing. But, you know, President Bush had been head of CIA, and we had given him some disguise materials more than once for various things that he was doing. So I took him some pictures of himself to remind him what he had done. I said, so I've, I've brought uh, the latest and greatest uh, new product here today to show you. And he's looking around my, my, my chair like, where's your bag? He said, where is it? I said, I'm wearing it. It's a full face mask. I'm going to take it off now and I'll show you how it works. And I start to take it off and he says, no, 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 <laughs> leave it on. And he got up and walked over and looked at it more closely, really scrutinized it. Now, if you do that, you know what you're looking at. You can kind of start seeing it. He went back, sat down, said, take it off. And I did. So I'm holding it up in the air so he can see that it's, it's like a feather. It's lighter than air. And there's a photographer in the room, I think, with a lot of these meetings. They're always mm -hmm. in there. So I hear her going, ka-ching, ka-ching. She's walking around taking pictures. I was the first one to brief the president. I was the first one to leave. So I went out into the uh, secretary's office. That, that dog that they had, Millie, and her puppies, they were out there. So I was playing with the puppies. And the photographer came out. And she came over and said, what was that? What did you do? And I said, I can't tell you. It's classified. <laughs> so I get this look. I said, but you photographed it. You know, 
it's there. It took 10 years for me to get the picture. And after 10 years, they sent me the picture and they have, I'm holding the mask up in the air. That's the one they chose to send me. And they airbrushed the mask out. So I have a picture here in my, in my office at home of me sitting in front of the president of the United States with my hand in the air. Holding nothing? <laughs> holding nothing. And people that come through <laughs> say, up until about two years ago, we did not talk about masks. This is a fairly recent understanding that, yes, we can have these conversations. But huh. all these years, I haven't been able to. And people would say, what, what were you telling him that you would? That's just so odd. And I would say, I, I can't remember. I was really into some story. I don't, I, I don't remember. But they airbrushed the mask out. Hmm. That's fascinating. We didn't make it to show to the White House. That was a, an add-on at the very end. And it's, it's, it, it, was, it was fun. And then after that, we have seen the bushes over the years. You know, if you live in Washington, D.C., and there's always a ballroom somewhere and those big round tables and and he he was famous. President Bush was famous for names and faces. That was one of his his abiding skills. He never forgot a face. And sometimes I would look across a couple of tables and I'd see him between two people and he'd be wagging his finger at me. He, he, I see you. I remember. <laughs> I remember your face. It was so funny. He did that twice. All right, Joe, what do you think? Uh, that is a fascinating story, Dave. That is, uh, that's one of the most interesting interviews we've had on here. I don't have a lot of comments about this. I think the story speaks for itself. I do like how she calls the office the Q office, right? Like right. James Bond. <laughs> right. Um, the, the tale about the mask and, and, and building a mask is, I mean, it, it, her whole story makes me want to just see what see if I can do something like this and and fool my friends, you know, see if I can pull this off. One of the things that I really liked about her story was the way she said they tested the, the disguise, where they would put somebody in the disguise and then they'd take them to an agent who would then do a, uh, a report on them. And if everything in that report was wrong about the person they were in, interviewing, then the disguise was deemed a success. That, mm -hmm. That's very interesting. I mean, that's that's a really good test of a disguise, I think. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very disappointed that she can't make me look thinner, um, but she couldn't make <laughs> me look fatter. Well, I can make me look fatter too. Uh, I just need a couple of weeks of pizza and then... <laughs> <laughs> One of the interesting things that I thought she said was that uh, when they were building a disguise for someone, they considered the audience. And that mm. is uh, a key important point that applies to everything that we talk about in this show. These, uh, every, every scammer considers their audience, whether their audience is every person in the world and they're just trying to filter down their audience or whether their audience is one person, they are considering their audience. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's mm -hmm. very important for everyone to remember about these malicious actors and, and anybody that's trying to, even, even a salesperson, right? A good salesperson considers their audience. Mm-hmm. I like her story about when she would go to the airport to meet the CIA agent. That kind of reminds me of the old DEF CON competition they used to have, Spot the Fed, right? <laughs> right, right? And this was at the DEF CON conference. <laughs> they don't do it anymore because now so many feds go to DEF CON that it, and they do it openly. But, yeah. you know, they used to go, they used to have a competition where 
if you could identify a federal agent and that federal agent would say, yes, I'm a federal agent, and you were the first person to do that, you could win a prize, right? <laughs> right it was, right. and they, they have stopped doing that, obviously, but it, it was a, yeah. it was a fun competition. I never, I've never been to DEF CON, but the idea is, is hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks so much to Jonna Mendez uh, for joining us. Uh, it was a real joy to get to talk to her. If you'd like to uh, check out some more of her stories, uh, she is co-author of a book called The Moscow Rules, uh, along with her uh, husband, uh, Antonio Mendez. Uh, had lots of stories about uh, the things that they were up to uh, back uh, during the Cold War uh, and uh, quite a page turner. So check that out if it's something you're interested in. And of course, our thanks to Jonna Mendez for joining us. And our thanks to all of you for listening to us. That is our show. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thank you.